Again, thanks for being here this morning at Prairie View. As we continue our series on practical matters, we make a natural shift from last week's topic of marriage to this week's topic of family. Because for better or for worse, we are all shaped by our families. Whether it's the family that we're born into, the family that we live with now, or maybe the family that we want to have in the future. The point is that our understanding of family plays a massive role in our development as people. Tying it back to last week, if you end up getting married, you find yourself transplanted into a new family and all the adjustments that come along with that. Or maybe you get married with hopes and dreams of starting a family. Well, like marriage, our culture has lots of questions about family. What makes a family? What is the purpose of family? We hear lots of competing messages through all kinds of mediums. Mediums like TV, art, politics, music, science, social justice, you name it. Now, many have rightly concluded that family can take lots of different forms. And while the core idea of family throughout history is a married man and woman bringing children into the world, that's not the only kind of family out there. And of course, there are countless opinions about what a healthy family should really look like. Well, in the same way that the Bible has much to say about marriage, the Bible has plenty to say about family. I mean, according to the Bible, the reason you and I exist is because God told two people a long time ago to be fruitful and multiply. In other words, start a family. But not only that, God's plan to reconcile sinful man to himself began with a family. God promised that Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the beach and that the whole world would be blessed Through this family. The Bible gives a front row seat for all of the good, bad, and ugly of families simply trying to get by in a fallen and sinful world. And in the process of reading those stories, we learn some things about family that might sound strange to our modern ears. Things we might not expect, but things that nonetheless we would be wise to hear. So open your Bibles to Psalm 127. This will be page 355 in our Bibles, and if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you today. But before we do any reading, let's pray. And before we pray, I also want to make a brief mention of something that Terry mentioned. We do specifically want to pray for the tragedy in Orlando. If you haven't read the news, if you haven't heard about that, at least 20 people were killed by a lone gunman in a nightclub that specifically caters to the LGBT community. So we want to pray for that entire situation as we get into our sermon this morning. So let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity that we have to worship you. We're grateful that we can come together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we can welcome guests and welcome strangers to worship with us as well. Father, I pray that as we consider your word this morning, That, as always, you would give us open hearts and open minds and open ears to what it is that you might have to say to each of us. That may look different. Some of us are going to hear different things that really seem to impact us. But I pray that you would use your word how you see fit in each and every heart and mind in this room. And, Father, we do pray for those suffering great loss in Orlando. We pray for the families of the victims. We pray for 
those who are wounded. We pray for the family of the shooter, as I'm sure they are in a great sense of shock as well. And maybe more than anything, God, uh, maybe a selfish prayer on the part of Christians, I pray that this was not done in the name of Christ. I pray that this wicked and cruel and horrific action was not taken in some desire to glorify you, because this does not glorify you. That brings great shame to your name. And so, Father, as more details come out, I pray that this was not done in your name, because it certainly is not the calling that we have as your sons and your daughters and as followers of Christ. But, Lord, be with those who are suffering, be with those who are hurting, and be with us this morning again as we hear from your word. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'd like to make a few big points about the family that I believe we glean from Scripture as we read. And the first one is this. Family is a gift from God. Simple point. Family is a gift from God. So Psalm 127, starting in verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. In the ancient world, and even today, family is a gift from God, especially a big family. Now, that's important for all of us to remember, especially in those moments when our families inevitably stress us out, right? But when families function the way God intends, families are a wonderful blessing. Families offer love and guidance and care and encouragement. But of course, we would be foolish to ignore those who, for many different reasons, don't experience the gift of a family that functions by God's design. We think about examples of families destroyed by things like divorce or addiction or crime or poverty. Families that have been riddled by cancer or other diseases. Husbands and wives who long to have children, long to start a family, but never are able to. Elderly people whose family has all but abandoned them in some nursing home far away. We think of children who spend their lives waiting and hoping and praying for a family to adopt them. Family is a gift from God that we absolutely should not take for granted, especially if we've been spared from those situations. Another point, building off of that one. While family is a gift from God, family also comes with great responsibility. I mean, think about it. Without a proper understanding of our responsibilities as parents or sons and daughters, siblings, you name it. If we don't understand our responsibilities to God and to each other in the family, our families fail to flourish. Think about some of those less than perfect examples of family in the Bible. You have Abraham and Sarah, two people who doubted God's promise to deliver offspring to the point that they manufacture a family of their own through Sarah's servant, Hagar. You can't blame them for doubting. Abraham and Sarah were both very old. God kind of took his time with the whole fulfillment of the promise thing. But of course, Abraham and Sarah taking things into their own hands led to difficulties down the road. Think about Jacob's family. Jacob's sons hated their brother Joseph. They treated him with cruelty and injustice and wickedness, selling him into slavery. 
Now, little did they know, but God was working behind the scenes through all of it to bring about great good. But the family was dysfunctional, to say the least. Think about David. David split apart Uriah and Bathsheba out of his own lust, and it caused all kinds of problems for David's family later. One of David's sons would die. Another two sons rebel against David's throne before Solomon finally takes over. And think about even Jesus's family tree, the son of God. Even Jesus's earthly family isn't exempt from issues. His family line includes a prostitute, an adulterer or accessory to murder in the case of David, who we just mentioned. Throw in a couple wicked kings for good measure, and there you have Jesus's family. Even his family wasn't perfect. Now, of course, the responsibility of the family has to start with the parents, right? That's a good place to start. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, starting in verse 4. One of the most often quoted passages about family, and rightfully so. Verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And one of the most important commands in all of the Old Testament, one of the most often quoted commands in the Old Testament, not just now, but way back then, too. Well, in that passage, God makes it crystal clear that a believing parent's highest calling and greatest responsibility is to teach and display who God is to their kids. That comes first above all else. We see something similar in the New Testament, Ephesians chapter six, verse four. Paul writes, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Instead of provoking them to anger, parents, Paul says, encourage them, love them, rebuke them when they need it, but do it out of love. Pray for your children. Show them the same kind of love that God has shown you, a love that is not contingent upon your performance, a love that is not based on your ability to earn it or your ability to keep it. That's the kind of love that Paul calls parents to show for their children. And of course, we get to first Timothy chapter five, verse eight, a passage we'll talk about next week as well. Paul writes, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Wow, that's a lot of responsibility. Now, most parents, even those who do not follow Christ, understand that part, the 1 Timothy 5, 8 part. The responsibility to meet the physical, material needs of their children in the best way they know how. And the responsibility of a parent for their children's spiritual and physical and material needs, that responsibility is so important that Paul mentions it in his criteria for leaders of the church. In passages like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, Paul makes specific mention that a man's ability to lead his family can give a glimpse of his ability to lead 
in a church. That's how important it is to Paul. Now, before we go any further, a few reflections about what we just discussed are in order. Number one, we parents know, or we should know, that in the big scheme of things, we have no control over whether or not our children believe. We have no control over that. We can do everything right on our end and have unbelieving kids. We can do everything wrong on our end and against all odds, by the grace of God, in spite of us, end up with kids who do believe. Belief and conversion, those are works of God that we can't manufacture within our children. Even if we say all the right things and do all the right things and follow all the right steps, there's no silver bullet to guarantee that our children will believe. We can control our obedience to God to display and teach our children about who God is. We can control that, but we can't control their response. It also should be mentioned again that what Paul calls the instruction of the Lord should be our top priority as parents. Because we can do all the things that our culture tells us makes us good parents, but then fail in the things that really matter. We can provide a nice house and up-to-date clothes and all the stuff that your kids are supposed to have. You can send them to the best schools and make sure they have lots of friends and keep them out of legal trouble and pay for them to play in the best sports leagues. We can get them nice cars when they turn 16 and make sure they get scholarships to a great college so that one day they'll have a great career. We can do all that stuff. But if we do all those things and raise good kids who are popular and well-adjusted, whatever that means... Well, if they don't know anything about the character of God and the love of Christ, because we haven't taught it and displayed it. Well, then in that case, we have failed to honor our highest calling as parents. Again, we can't control their response to the instruction of the Lord. But it is still our responsibility to provide it. That's a lot of heavy stuff for parents, but there's stuff for kids, too. There's responsibility in all parts of the family. Kids don't get off easy either. They have responsibility as well. We read passages, of course, like the Ten Commandments, honor your father and your mother. We read the book of Proverbs, where there are multiple sayings about how a child who loves God and loves his parents is a great blessing. But a child who does not can bring great sorrow. In Ephesians 6, 1 through 3, the same passage with direction to parents, Paul directs kids to submit to their parents. Now, this is a lifelong calling, which means people like me, who maybe don't live at home anymore, maybe you're over the age of 18, maybe you're paying your own bills, we still honor our parents. We honor our parents because if for no other reason they gave us life, Whether we're Christians or not, whether they're Christians or not, they brought us into this world. Thus, we honor them. Now, of course, if you're in that situation where you have to choose between honoring God and honoring mom and dad, well, what do you do? Well, the answer is pretty easy. But we hope and pray that we don't find ourselves in situations like that. That we have godly parents who love us and love God as well. Now, one more point. Our families can be an idol. 
Think about that. Our parents can be an idol. Perhaps some of us are guilty of worshiping the idea of having a family. Maybe we find ourselves despising those who have what we wish we had. Maybe we already have a family to call our own, but we're consumed by the thought and worship the thought of our family being bigger. You know, if I could just have one more baby, then I'd be happy. Well, if that's the case, we may find ourselves taking for granted the countless gifts that God has given us. And worst of all, we may find ourselves unsatisfied with God himself. We may find ourselves believing that because God didn't give us the thing that we think we want, that God has somehow treated us unfairly or unjustly or that God doesn't really love us. But maybe an idol for us isn't the idea of having kids in the first place or having more kids. Maybe our idol is an obsession with having the perfect family, the family without any problems, the family without any drama, the family that looks like Beaver Cleaver's family. Right. Well, because of that idolatry, we may end up discouraging our kids or discouraging our family members the way Paul warned us not to. We may provoke them to anger because we put so much pressure on them to perform, so much pressure on them to keep up appearances, so much pressure to always have it together instead of loving them, even in their sin. If we're obsessed with the idea of having a perfect family, we may isolate ourselves from the people who need Christ the most. Those people who have never heard the gospel might also be the people who we're tempted to isolate our kids from. I pray that our idol would not be having a perfect family, that we would not provoke our kids to anger because of it, and that we would not neglect the Great Commission because we'd rather just isolate our families so that we don't make any mistakes. But not only that, looking at the words of Jesus, we find that families simply aren't worthy of our worship. Look at what we read in Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 59. As Jesus invites a man to follow him, to another he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Sounds kind of harsh, doesn't it? This guy just wants to do right by his father. He just wants to please his family. And yet Jesus says, you know what? No. What matters more, what's more urgent right now, what's more important, is that you follow me. Well, maybe Jesus was just having a bad day. I mean, that sounds kind of harsh, right? Well, look at what else he says. Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 21. As he speaks about persecution, Jesus says, Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Even more directly, verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. 
And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Well, family is a good gift from God, but Jesus makes no bones about it, that he's more important. And if, God forbid, we had to choose between loyalty to Christ and loyalty to family, according to Jesus, the decision is clear. Now, so far, this may be about what you expected the Bible to say about family. Pretty standard stuff, right? Maybe other than those radical words from Jesus. It's a gift from God that comes with great responsibility. But we are tempted to worship it when Jesus makes it clear that our loyalty lies with him above all else. All pretty standard stuff, but that's not all we read about family. You see, Jesus and the rest of the New Testament... They challenge us to broaden our vision when it comes to family, to think bigger. When Christians like us hear the word family, we're challenged not just to think of the people that we live with, not just to think of our relatives, not just to think of our last name or our bloodline, because God's family is much, much bigger than just my family or your family. Think about Jesus's words and Luke chapter 8, starting in verse 19. People come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, your family's here to see you. Your brothers and your mother, they're outside. They want to talk to you. And Jesus says, my mother, my brothers are those who do the will of God. God's family is not marked by genetics. God's family is marked by faith. We call God Father. We call each other brother and sister because God has brought us into a new family. God has brought us into his family. Consider John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. According to John, when we believe in Christ, we become part of a new family family, a family that we were never a part of before. We really can call God father because of what Christ has done for us. In several of his letters, Paul uses the phrase household of God to describe the church. And this household, this family that Paul talks about, it consists of Jews and Gentiles, old and young, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, educated, uneducated, white collar, blue collar. All of them, according to Paul, are part of the family because of what Christ has done. Maybe you've heard that old saying about family that blood is thicker than water. Well, blood isn't thicker than the waters of baptism. Consider what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 18. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There it is, household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit. No longer strangers, no longer enemies, no longer aliens, family, brothers and sisters. 
We see the point again in chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Because of what Christ has done, you are a part of God's family. And that family is much, much bigger than just the people you're related to. Just the people who gave birth to you or the people that you gave birth to. It's not about last names or bloodlines. God's family is so much bigger than that. And no matter your family situation, biologically, here in this life, no matter that situation, you have a role to play in God's family. Think about that relationship between Paul and Timothy. With Paul, we have a guy who wasn't married, a guy who never had kids. With Timothy, we have a guy whose father is essentially absent from the New Testament. We know he was a Greek. Other than that, we know nothing about Timothy's father. Neither one of these men had a typical, traditional family to call their own. But they were together in God's family. They were one in God's family. Paul repeatedly refers to Timothy as his beloved child. They had a father-son relationship, even though they did not share a last name. Because they were family members in God's family. There are people in this family of God, Prairie View Christian Church, who need you. There are widows in this church who need you. If your kids are old enough to be out of the house, young parents like me need you. We need all the help and guidance and prayer that we can get. There are people here who have little or no faith support in their homes from spouses or from parents. Those people need you. Regardless of what your biological family is like, there are people in the family of God who need you as a spiritual parent, a spiritual child to encourage them. A brother or sister who can walk with them through mutual challenges of life. And our church family, it's not just so that we can have a bunch of warm, fuzzy feelings for each other. It's not just so that we can support each other and care for each other, although all of those things are wonderful and bring great honor to God. This church family is meant to display the truth about God to anyone who encounters it. I mean, imagine someone walking into this church and really seeing a godly love amongst all of us. The love of a family, even though so few of us are actually related by blood. For someone who's never experienced the love of a family before, our love for each other can send a powerful message. When those people come in here and see people with so many differences and so many personalities and so many opinions loving each other like brothers and sisters, they might walk out of here and say, you know, maybe there really is something to this whole Christian faith stuff that they talk about. We display the truth about God, not only to each other, but to the strangers who walk in this place looking for a family to call their own. Now, maybe you've read the story of Abraham and Isaac. When God told Abraham to sacrifice his son, that's an awkward family situation, I'd say so. That's the one son that God gave him through Sarah's womb. 
The son that he loved so much, the son that God was going to fulfill his promise through. Well, in the end, God didn't actually want Abraham to kill Isaac. He stopped him before it got to that point. But Abraham did display great faith. As unreasonable as it sounds, Abraham seems to have believed that one way or another, God would still fulfill his promise through Isaac. Maybe that God would even be crazy enough to raise someone from the dead, if that's what it took. Well, years later, God put his money where his mouth was by giving up his own son on the cross. Jesus, the son, obeyed God, the father, and God, the father, watched his son die at the hands of sinners. Also, that sinners like you and sinners like me could be welcomed back into his family like it was from the very beginning. Regardless of where you are with your biological family, whether you have a wonderful family that you love dearly or whether you look at your family and think it's a train wreck, just know that you have a family to call your own here because of what Christ did for you. You have a family that loves you, that wants to encourage you and teach you and care for you and serve you and pray for you and even rebuke you when that time comes because Lord knows we all need it every now and then. And this family of God, it's big and diverse. It's full of sinners, it's full of saints, all at the same time. This family is beautiful in its imperfections. And of course, there's always more room in this family of God. I pray that we would take our families very seriously, not just as a gift that God has given us, but that a responsibility that he has privileged us with. I pray that we wouldn't worship our families as idols instead of worshiping the God who gave our families to us. And I pray that as we think of family as followers of Christ, we think a whole lot bigger than just the people that we're related to. We think about the people sitting beside us and in front of us and behind us, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we thank God every single day that he gave up his son, that we could call ourselves part of his family. Let's pray. Father, again, we are so grateful that Regardless of what our biological family is like, that we do have a family to call our own. One of the countless beauties of the body of Christ is that we have brothers and sisters. We have people who genuinely love us and genuinely care for us. Not just because they have to, but because we've all been saved by the same Christ. I pray that the love we have for each other would be obvious, not only to us, but to the strangers who watch us, the strangers who observe us. I pray that we would consider Jesus's prayer before he's crucified, that they would all be one, that we would love each other. I pray that we would continue to grow closer as a family, that we would not let divisions or grudges or personality differences or differences of opinion disrupt the family, that we would learn to bear with each other and serve each other through thick and thin, through good times and bad times. 
I pray that the family that we have here would be shaped by a cross-shaped love. That we would lay down our lives for each other, that we would sacrifice for each other. And that our relationships would give people just the tiniest, tiniest glimpse of your character and your son's love. We love you. We praise you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you are not yet a follower of Christ, if you don't really have a family of God to call your own, talk to one of our elders. They'll be happy to pray with you, happy to answer your questions. They'll be standing at the sides of the room as we sing this last song. Maybe you have a family of God. Maybe you're a part of God's family here at this church or here at a different church. But maybe you kind of have some things going on with your family that you'd like to talk about, things that you could use prayer for, maybe sin to be repented of, or you just need encouragement or anything at all. Talk to the elders about that. They'd be happy to pray with you about those things as well. Again, we're very grateful that you're here this morning. We hope you have a wonderful Sunday, and we'll see you next week.